Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Scar-Free Foundation podcast. I'm Charlotte Coates and I'm Head of Research Funds at the Foundation and your host. For those of you new to the podcast, we're a medical research charity based in London and we fund research into wound healing and scarring. We're working to improve the lives of people who live with scarring or who will encounter it in the future. Our ultimate aim is to achieve scar-free healing within a generation. So we're doing this podcast because we want to share information about what we do and why we do it. In this episode, we have an interview with Dr. Yvonne Wren from the Cleft Collective. This scar-free foundation-funded initiative at the University of Bristol is an amazing resource for researchers across the globe. With over 10,000 participants, the Cleft Collective is one of the largest studies of cleft in the world and includes genetic, clinical and self-reported data, all of which is available to the international research community. Well, hello, Yvonne. Thanks very much for giving up your time today to have a chat with me. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yes. Hi, Charlotte. So I'm Yvonne Wren. I'm the Chief Investigator of the Cleft Collective. Um, I have a background in speech and language therapy, and I worked as a speech and language therapist uh, for 10 years in hospitals and community clinics and, and schools. And then I got interested in research with a particular interest in children who have persistent speech disorder. And that gradually over time, led me to uh, connecting with research in cleft because children born with cleft are at high risk of persistent speech disorder. So now I have a much broader area of interest, uh, which still includes persistent speech disorder and indeed other types of communication impairment, but also aspects of cleft unrelated to speech. Uh, So looking as well at uh, things relating to genetics and psychology and a whole range of things all connected with cleft. So for people who don't know, would you mind explaining what cleft lip and palate actually is? Sure. Uh, Now, it's interesting because uh, we tend to think of it as a single condition and it's actually a group of conditions. So children can be born with a cleft lip on its own or they could be born with a cleft palate on its own or a cleft lip and palate. And basically what it is, it's a hole or a gap in the lip or a hole or gap in the palate, which is the roof of the mouth. And for some children, if they have a cleft lip and palate, it'll go all the way through from the nose uh, through the lip and then all the way through the palate. Um, And it occurs in about one in 700 children which means we have about a 1,000 or just over a 1,000 children, babies born each year in the UK with one type of cleft or another. Uh, but it does vary and that uh, some populations are more uh, have a higher incidence than others. So um, some Asian uh, populations have a higher incidence and, and African heritage families are less likely to have children born with cleft. So could you explain some of the problems faced by children who have cleft? And adults, indeed. Yeah, indeed. And I think the first point to say about that really is that uh, these children and and adults, as they become, have amazing resilience. And so, yes, they they do have problems. um, But I think... The remarkable thing. So anyone that's listening to this who might be a parent uh, or may have just found out that they're going to have a baby or have just had a baby born with a cleft, you will be amazed by your child's resilience uh, and, and they they are be- become very strong. Um, and we also have 
fantastic care in this country and care that's monitored to ensure that standards remain high. So you're in really good care. But yes, children born with cleft do have some additional problems uh, compared to, to other children. And they really vary from one child to another. So I think probably it's easiest to, to focus on three main problems which many children born with cleft have. So the first of these is perhaps the most obvious one that people think about, and that's appearance. If you have a baby born with a hole in their lip, you can see that uh, from the moment they're born. If they have a hole, a, a cleft palate, then that's inside the mouth and you can't see that uh, without looking in the mouth. But you'll know pretty quickly because uh, food, milk, whatever starts coming down the baby's nose. So you, there is a, there's a problem there. So there's a problem with the structure uh, of the mouth and the palate, which means that there's a difference in appearance. And that difference in appearance changes over time. So uh, the surgery repairs that uh, appearance very early on. But because of the way that the face grows over time, more surgery is needed and changes in appearance will occur as as the face grows. And in fact, that's where the scarring element really comes in here, certainly the visible scarring, because uniquely in cleft, um, children are born with a problem which is resolved by surgery, which forms a scar. And that's different to all of the other scars that that we are involved with in Scar Free, where it's an incident that happens later in life. And the thing that that is remarkable about clefts and scarring is that it means it's very uniform. You have the same kind of surgery. It's in the same part of the body. It's in the same, uh, it's the same degree of of scar. So that's one um, problem, appearance that we talked about. So another problem that children will often face if they have a cleft of the palate is with their speech. Uh, we use our mouths for talking. Our tongue uh, hits the roof of our mouth to make all sorts of different speech sounds. And also the dangly bit at the back of the throat that, that you can see, which is the soft palate, moves up and down throughout speech and it closes off our nose, the nasal cavity, uh, and enables us to make lots of different speech sounds. So if that bit at the back of the mouth is not functioning properly, you'll have children who will sound very nasal or may even be impossible to understand because they can't make many of the sounds that need pressure. And other children will have problems because the way the tongue hits the palate alters the way they speak. So that's speech. And then the third problem, and this is a problem that affects all children, actually, um, and in fact, all of us, but perhaps it affects children born with cleft differently. And this is our well-being. And we know that Young people, um, many young people have problems with their well, well-being this, uh, at the moment. And, um, and we're very mindful that children born with cleft have had a different experience growing up. And so it may be that they have problems with their well-being connected to their cleft as well. There can be other problems, tend to have more, more, much more likely to have, um, tooth decay. And we're still trying to work out why that is. Um, uh, but those are the main problems that children born with cleft might experience. You're the chief investigator of the Cleft Collective. The Cleft Collective's official name is uh, Cleft Gene Bank and Cohort Study. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is the Cleft Gene Bank and Cohort Study? Good question. I'm going to start with the cohort study bit. A cohort study is basically what we call an observational study. So we recruit lots and lots of participants and we follow them over time. So we're not trying to do anything 
different. We're not trying to trial a new intervention. Uh, we are just monitoring and following these children over time, collecting lots and lots of data to see if we can use that data to understand something about uh, which treatments work best uh, and how children progress over time. The other bit, the gene bank, is uh, reflecting the fact that we also collect biological samples from our participants in the Clef Collective. And the reason that we do that is so that we can do DNA extraction and then do genotyping. And what this means is that we can get genetic data to help us understand why children might have been born with clefts, but also understand why children respond differently to different kinds of treatments. It's one study, but with those two major elements as part of it. Would you be able to outline some of the main achievements of the study? Yes. Uh, now, the study has three core aims, and this has really come from what parents have told us. They ask that they're going to have a child born with a cleft, or they've had a baby and they've found that it has a cleft. Most parents will often ask, why? Why my child? Why did my child have this cleft? Um, parents will also want to know well, what can be done about it. What's the best thing? We want the best treatment. And parents, I think all parents want to know, will my child be okay when they grow up? Will they be able to make friends? Will they be able to get a job? All those kinds of things. So those are the questions that are driving the work that we're doing in the Clef Collective. Now, in terms of our achievements, uh, in many ways, we are on the cusp of, of starting to investigate and use the data to answer questions relating to those three aims. We needed to collect a large amount of data. We needed to recruit a large number of participants in order to be able to answer those questions. And with other kinds of cohort studies, if they're looking at something like cancer or heart disease, for example, there are many, many more people in the UK and uh, internationally who have those conditions. And therefore, it's much, you can get a, a a cohort big enough much more quickly. In Cleft, we've had to wait until we've recruited over many years. So the first big achievement that I would like to um, uh, shout about, if you like, with Scar Free Foundation's support and their funding, also with input and, and involvement from the 16 regional Cleft teams and all the families around the UK born with cleft, we have now recruited our 10,000th participant. And uh, that's a fantastic achievement. We're very proud of it. It's huge work from the team here in Bristol to have achieved that. Uh, and as I say, also from the regional cleft centres and the families themselves. So that achievement will allow us to mine the data to answer different questions. But I think the important thing as well is to understand well, what, to what extent are we starting to move towards answering those three questions about causes, best treatments and outcomes. One of the things that we have been doing is uh, carrying out genotyping. So we are at the point very soon of being able to use that genetic data to look at why some children have got the genes for cleft but have and have a cleft, whereas other people have the genes for cleft but don't have a cleft. And we know that it's something to do with lifestyle factors and environmental factors. So we're going to be exploring that. One thing that we have already done is look to see to what extent genes play a part in educational outcomes for children born with cleft. So we know that as a group, children born with cleft tend to do worse at school. And we don't know why that is. But our research has shown that it's not to do with a genetic predisposition 
to do worse academically. There's nothing genetically that's causing that. So something is happening. Maybe it's because you're out of school for appointments and things, or maybe it's because we're not addressing needs within school. We don't know yet. So that's one of the things we're going to go on to do. That's the foundation of the work that we've done with that already. Some other work that we've done, Gemma Sharp uh, led this work, and this was, again, using the um, biological samples to look at something called methylation, which uh, I'm not going to try and explain that in detail because it's really not my area. Um, my <laughs> colleagues will say, you've got that wrong. But fundamentally, what that's shown us is that there is a difference between those different cleft types in how a cleft has has evolved, how it's how it's been caused, what's caused uh, the, the causal pathway for that cleft. So whereas in the past... We thought of it as one condition, cleft lip and palate. We now know from our research, we have to look at these as separate conditions, cleft lip only, cleft palate only. And even cleft lip and palate needs to be separated between unilateral cleft lip and palate, where it occurs on one side of the mouth, and bilateral, where it occurs on both. So pre-cleft collective, did anybody have an inkling that this was the case or...? We did have, there were, There has been some other research looking at that. And what we've been able to do is replicate and confirm that. And it's shown us that we need to do that throughout all the research that we're doing, whether we're looking at the causes, the treatments or the outcomes. We need to see these as separate conditions. And in fact, that's been one of the major drivers for our need to continue the study and recruit more children because otherwise we don't have samples big enough to look at these as separate conditions. That's really interesting. So in terms of treatments, is there a focus on developing treatments or looking at treatments? Because I know that you work quite heavily with all of the clinical centres and all of their treatment is standardised. Mm. But has there been any impact in that area? Or do you think that's something that will come out when people start using the data for their own research? In terms of interventions, whether it's surgical, speech and language therapy, psychology or whatever, there... The good thing is with research is that we need a variety of different research to answer questions like which treatments are best. So there's lots of work going on outside of the Cleft Collective with, with the clinical teams and other research teams looking at new types of intervention and doing different kinds of studies, experimental type studies, where they compare different different types and, and different timings and, um, and even dosage of things like the amount of speech and language therapy interventions. So what we're trying to do in the Cleft Collective is something different. As I said, it's an observational study, so we collect lots and lots of data over time and when we've got a lot of data we can then look and compare uh, different treatment pathways uh, and look and, and see if the outcomes for children are different depending on whether for example they had their surgery um, at three months versus six months or six months versus 12 months or whether they had speech and language therapy before they started school or after they started school. We break that big question of which treatments work best down into lots and lots of very small questions and then we will mine the data to try and get answers to those small questions that then combined helps us answer that bigger question of which treatments work best. But yes, we do work very closely with the clinical teams because what we need to be asking are the questions they think are important. So they're collecting the data with us and for us and we will work with them to work out what questions we should be asking. And the other thing that I haven't said about the Cleft Collective, which is not unique but unusual, is that we are building a data set or resource that is available for anyone that submits a proposal that's, that's accepted to use. So I want to reassure people that 
you know, the people that, that there is a robust process for people to access the data. It's not just out there for anybody to use, but we want people to use it. This is, We're not just collecting the data for the team at Bristol. We promote it across the globe. And in fact, we've already had 47 proposals to use the data and that will grow as the genotype data becomes available. And as we get more treatment and outcome data and the children get older, because we're recruiting from birth for a lot of the sample, we need to wait until they reach a certain age till we can ask, ask certain questions. But we will make the data available so that People who want to investigate specific questions around treatment can access the data and, and, and do that. Excellent. And anyone from around the world in academia yeah. can obviously do that by visiting the Clef Collective's website. Exactly. In academia or clinical academic research, uh, yeah, we're very happy to talk to people. Do look at the website first because there's lots and lots of information on there. Um, and then we're happy to follow up with a phone call or a or Zoom call, Teams call, email, whatever after that. Excellent. So one of the things that always really strikes me about the Cleft Collective is the amount of engagement with people with a lived experience of cleft, whether that be uh, people who have a cleft themselves or their parents, their families, etc. So do you want to talk a little bit, Yvonne, about how um, the input and engagement with people with a lived experience of cleft kind of works in this study or enhances it even? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's really good that over the years that I've been involved in research, this aspect of of people with lived experience informing, driving uh, research, um, disseminating research, uh, being involved in all aspects of research, it's become far more um, recognised and valued. Uh, and that's that's great because actually if what we're doing doesn't make a difference for the people uh, or the population that we are investigating, then actually what's the point? So really pleased that it's it's much more, got a much bigger focus in research these days. We're very fortunate in CLEFT in that we have um, an organisation called the CLEFT Lip and Palate Association, which is often um, called, its, it's abbreviation is CLAPPER. Um, they are a very strong organisation uh, and they are um, supported by um, fundraising and donations. So they they do a great job to just survive, um, in fact. But they provide support for families uh, who are um, adjusting to having a baby born with cleft. And they, they follow people all the way through the lifespan. So we have worked closely with Clapper to build our patient consultation group. And that patient consultation group um, has guided the work that we do over many years. And we meet three times a year. We're very fortunate we've been able to start meeting again in, in person, which we do once a year. And in fact, this group with Clapper support was using Zoom way before anybody else. <laughs> so that was my first introduction to those uh, Zoom type meetings. And what we do with that group is we ask them about their stories, their lived experience, their experience of of treatment. And for some people, that was many years ago. For others, it was much more recent. We have parents who are members of that group as well, and they some of them are very early on this journey. But they help keep us grounded. They help remind us that what we're doing, whilst we might be dealing with data and numbers, that actually behind each data set is a real person, a real family, um, somebody who's particular experience is unique um, and that the impact of what we're doing will have a unique 
impact for them as well. Um, we're very fortunate that working with Clapper and our patient consultation group, we were awarded the Peer Prize, that stands for the Patient Involvement and Engagement in Research, from the Royal College of Paediatricians in Child Health back in 2020. So it was great to get that recognition. But it's very, very much a team effort with Clapper and the members of our patient consultation group, but hugely important to what we do. The Scarfree Foundation, we're a medical research charity. We aren't a support charity, um, but we do receive lots and lots of inquiries from people um, who are living with scarring, who are living with cleft, who are living with burns, asking about support and sources of support. Now, I would presume that, you know, if we disseminate this podcast widely and hopefully maybe people on social media might pick it up and might wonder where they might be able to go for support or um, a group or, you know, that kind of thing. If they are living with cleft, they feel isolated or it's impacting on them in a way. Um, could you recommend any sources of advice, guidance, support? Yes, certainly it would be Clapper. Yeah. Clapper are the place to go. So it's very easy if you just Google Clapper, C-L-A-P-A, uh, and you will find Clapper. They have a huge amount of support on their website. I would I would actually um, plug this both ways. They, uh, As I've already mentioned, they are reliant entirely on donations. So if you're looking to, um, to provide support, mm-hmm. they would be very pleased to hear from you. It's a very difficult times for them and they are a crucial organisation. They provide information right from, you know, those, those struggles with feeding, which are very real for, for these babies. Um, they've got a huge amount of support um, for parents in those very early days. They also have an adult services support as well. And you might be somebody who has lived with a cleft for many years. You had your surgery a long time ago. And actually, it's, it is a lifelong condition. And sometimes at different times in our lives, we have different triggers that mean it becomes an issue again for you when perhaps it hasn't been for many years. Clapper is an ideal place to go to for that sort of support. The other place you can go to is one of the regional cleft teams. And I'm going to refer to Clapper again because they have that information on their website. The 16 regional cleft teams around the UK, you might find that it's not that local to you, but that's actually a good thing because they these teams are really specialist and skilled in what they do. Uh, and they will also be a huge source of support and advice for you. So yeah, Clapper and also the regional cleft teams, those are the places to go for support. Thank you. Okay. So 10,000 participants, mm. nearly 10 years. What's next? Plans for the future? It's, an, it's a really exciting time for us, actually. I, it's been a tough time over the last few years, as it, as it has mm. been with COVID for so many people. So difficult time. But we're in a good place now. We, uh, we've been so um, pleased to have had the support of Scarfree Foundation over this 10-year period to get us to where we are now. And we're excited now that with new funding from the Underwood Trust that we are able to continue the study. And that's going to allow us to do three main things. The first of these is actually more of the same. As I've said we need a large sample we now know we need an even larger sample than we thought at the beginning of this journey and the funding will allow us to continue to recruit with the support of the 16 regional cleft teams and it will allow us to continue to collect data from the families directly and also from the clinical teams so we will continue to do that because this is all about building a resource that is big enough to answer the kinds of big questions we want to ask That's one thing. The other thing that we will be doing is using the data ourselves, but also encouraging others to use the data. So we will be using the data to answer specific research questions along those themes of causes, treatments and outcomes. And then the third thing is that we will be promoting it 
globally. Uh, and we've already started that. We we spoke at the American Cleft Palate Association last year. Uh, no, sorry, this year. Last year and this year. Last year it was virtual. This year it was in person. And we also had uh, 16 different presentations and a keynote and a workshop at the recent International Cleft Congress. So we're able to get the message out there to people that this is a data set that you can use. And that's really important. We need as many people to be using it as possible because that makes research cost effective means that people don't have to spend the kind of money that they need to to collect new data if they can use our data. And the more of us working on this, the quicker we will get the answers to these questions. So those are our priorities over the next five years. Excellent. So finally, fast forward to 2050. What do you hope the treatment and experiences of a child born with cleft would be like by then? So I really like this question because it gives the sense that this is, this takes time and that this is uh, a long-term project. We can't, you know, we can't answer these questions quickly. It does take years to answer the questions and it takes even longer to then implement them sometimes into clinical care. But fast forward to 2050, um, what would I hope uh, things would look like? Two main things, uh, well, three main things, really, again, referring to those three aims that we had. The first is that I hope that with data and analysis, well, analysis using data from the Cleft Collective, we will have a better understanding of why children are born with clefts. And because of that understanding, we will be able for some children to reduce the likelihood of babies being born with clefts so that in total, the incidence goes down. And that's worldwide. And I've already mentioned that it is more common in some countries than others, uh, and it has a bigger impact in some countries than others. They don't have the kind of resources that we have in the UK and other places. So if we can do things which reduce the incidence, that will have a massive impact on the lives of people that would have been born with cleft. So that's the biggest one, I think. We will also have a better understanding of what works in treatment in terms of which techniques are most effective, but also timing. When should we be doing things so that it can have the most impact? And how much should we be doing things so that it can have the most impact? So I hope that as a result of that, the third thing is that outcomes. So in other words, what I mean by that is what people born with cleft look like, sound like, feel like when they reach adulthood will be better than it is now. And I think that my clinical colleagues, who are the ones delivering these services, would, I hope, share those those ambitions as well. And that it's a journey that we're going on together with the parents and families of children affected by cleft. Fabulous. Thanks very much, Yvonne. Thanks, Charlotte. And thank you very much for having me. Cheers. If you'd like to know more about the Cleft Collective, please visit their website, cleftcollective.co.uk. And also, just to recap, Clapper, the Cleft Lip and Palate Association, their website is clapper.com. That's C-L-A-P-A dot com. The Cleft Collective is a truly unique resource, as Yvonne said, and it is available to researchers around the world to use. It is also worth saying that this study could only take place in the UK. This is because we have a centralised service for cleft lip and palate through the National Health Service and also because we have a large population. Not many other countries have both of these things.
So if you like this podcast, please, as ever, subscribe and share. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. In upcoming episodes, I'll be talking to Scarfery Foundation funded researchers and also catching up with the Foundation's lead ambassador, Simon Weston, CBE. You can find out more about the Scarfree Foundation at scarfree.org.uk, on Facebook, on Twitter at Scarfree World, and on Instagram. Thanks for listening. More soon. Bye-bye.